It's just after midnight, Monday, May 30th, 2022. It is Memorial Day, and you are listening to a special edition of the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon, both of us who have served in the military, both of us who have lost friends in the military, and uh, especially somber given the events of last week also in Uvalde, Texas. That'll come later in the show, but but Paul, first we pay homage and honor the fallen on Memorial Day, and I think as Americans, there's nothing more sacred or more important than honoring the soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines and Coast Guardsmen who have paid the ultimate price. Well, Connor, for those of you that that know me, I always like to open things up with a joke. I tend to have a sense of humor that many of our listeners find funny. My wife doesn't always feel that way, but most other people do. Um, <laughs> but I, this has been a bit of a somber few days. As many of you know, maybe you, many of you don't know, Connor and I are both veterans. And I personally spent over a year in Afghanistan on the ground. So I've had a, I've come up close and personal with some hairy situations, have known people that have lost their lives and given the ultimate sacrifice for this country. And it's a very sober thing. And I think something that most people in America who may have their mental health crises and their self-care and their microaggressions and their triggering have no idea what real hell is. And that's, that's being at war and in combat. And this Memorial Day, I think, is what we should really be focusing on. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, listen, my grandparents, around the time of, you know, World War II, about 12% of all American men fought in World War II. And the Vietnam War, I think, was about 2%. A lot of people, hundreds of thousands of American boys were sent to the rice paddies of Vietnam against their will. Korea, less, but, you know, still a percent, 2% is not a small number. You get to, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, in which we both served, and that number is a fraction of a percent. And so it is not as common to see the gold star in the window or the flags at half-mast, but even today, Paul, you know, as recently as last year, we had the 13 servicemen who paid the ultimate price at the airfield in Afghanistan at Bagram trying to get out, or the inter- actually the international airport, trying to get Americans and people who served alongside us, our allies, trying to get them out safely, and they paid the ultimate price. And so whether it's those 13 or frankly, the millions to whom we all owe a tremendous debt, we should be thinking about them, if not every day, certainly today. We certainly should. If you may uh, allow me some time to talk a little bit about what it was like for me on the ground in Afghanistan, I don't, I don't think that most people from watching the news tend to appreciate exactly what it was like in that country. And so... I know that that you, Connor, were not exactly, you know, quite in the front line like I was, but still it was an extremely important mission and one that was not without danger in its own right. But I arrived in 2000, the end of 2009. Barack Obama was newly elected president. He was adamant to have this big surge in Afghanistan where he put forth 100,000 troops uh, into harm's way there with the idea of building a Western-style modern democracy in a completely backwards country. And from my impressions of getting there initially was that the Afghans were like, why are all these Americans here? Like, we don't really care if we have schools a school or like a flushable toilet or whatever. We're happy in our whole, you know, in our hut or our outhouse. 
Why do they think that, you know, they, we want to live exactly how they are? They have different values, different priorities. Completely different values and different priorities. Uh, very religious, very focused on family, very focused on sort of their own life and just how they're going to eat that day and how they're going to survive. They're not really thinking about gender equality or, or LGBTQ plus IA issues like the Obama administration might have thought that they were thinking about? Well, back then, you know, girls were not going to school past a certain age, right? Exactly. And when, as part of our effort there, which I think was an admirable one, was, was to help the, you know, help women in Afghanistan and girls obtain an education and be able to have more control over their own life. The problem is when you come in and you tell other people how to live, it just does not work. So from the time I got there, there were just some major issues. There was a lot of chaos. I think within the first week I was there, there was a rocket attack on our base. We first had some close people that had gone outside the base and never came back. Um, I had gone outside uh, the wire probably about 200 times. I wasn't exactly in a combat role, but was still out and about. If you were in those vehicles, you were at risk. Yeah, this is not like World War I where there was like a front line with trenches. It's like if you're outside, the risk is almost the same on everybody. You know, they know you're in a military vehicle. You're at risk of getting blown up. You're a target. You're an American. You're a target. Exactly. Or any foreigner. I mean, there were a lot of NATO folks there. So everybody was a target. So we had one day, there was an army master sergeant. He was the actually the, uh, the garrison senior uh, enlisted member on the base. So he went out to, for something, I, he had some meeting at the Ministry of Defense, Afghan Ministry of Defense, with our counterparts there, and uh, never made it back. Was blown up by a vehicle-borne IED. So that was one of the first experiences. We had some Italians on our base on the way uh, in a convoy from our base to the airport, they all got blown up. So six of them died. Our base itself was attacked by a suicide bomber. And we had, I think about six or seven people died and about a hundred wounded. The base only had 900 people on it. So when you think about a hundred wounded out of a base of 900 people, very significant. I sort of barely missed that myself uh, as I was driving outside the gate the suicide bomber came in not far, you know, not too soon after I left. So it was pretty jarring. And then we were, we were stuck outside the base and couldn't get back in. There were some times where, you know, I remember doing laundry on my, on the base and there was a, I had, there was someone else's clothes in the dryer. And you know how, like when you go to the laundry and you, if it's like you live in an apartment complex and you're using public laundry with coins or whatever, and you go and there's no, you know, the stuff's just sitting there and you're like, why is this person's laundry in the, in the dryer? And, you know, you're going to take it out. And I go, so that happened. I go in there, I start taking this stuff out. Someone comes and runs and says, that's my friend's clothes. He died yesterday in an attack and I'm sending those back to his parents. So it's like those kind of events that happen in a war that, you know, you don't really think about until you're until you're actually there. And people don't seem to have a lot of respect for that. And I don't want to get kind of overly political, but and obviously Uvalde was absolutely terrible. Barack Obama sent a tweet out that I wanted to read and just see what you think about it. Can, can, let's save that for the third segment, because we are going to talk about Uvalde. I do want to. Yeah, but he did talk. I mean, but he talked a lot about I mean, it's just sort of he talks about George Floyd. He goes, we should take time out to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us all to this day, especially those who loved him. And, you know, I see our former president who sent us to Afghanistan as part of this huge surge. And in my opinion, has blood on his hands for thousands of deaths of American service members we're leading up to Memorial Day, and he's memorializing a career criminal like George Floyd. Yeah, I mean, did he ever send a tweet about Pat Tillman? Did he ever send 
a tweet about the, the 13 men and women who died in that attack in Afghanistan trying to get Americans and their family members out? You know, was there a tweet for, you know, Sergeant Nicole G of uh, my home state of Sacramento who died in that attack? No, it's all political cynicism. And I wouldn't expect anything less from somebody like Barack Obama or Joe Biden or, or maybe even, well, I, I mean, those guys didn't serve a day in uniform. I think Bill Clinton was pretty good about it. Uh, Donald Trump is pretty good about it. But, you know, Obama, you know, he deserves credit as a commander in chief for making the very tough decision to enter the sovereign territory of Pakistan and take out Osama bin Laden. That was that was some pretty serious commander in chief bona fides that he demonstrated there. But we got to honor the men and women who paid this ultimate sacrifice. George Floyd, if it wasn't for the circumstances of his death, which were largely contributed to by his own actions, the amount of drugs in his system which would kill most humans, the his own actions were partly to blame. But he he is elevated as some sort of martyr. It's disgusting. And uh, you know, I'm glad he didn't send that tweet today. See if he sends out any tweets today. But uh, just shameful. Did you lose close friends over there, Paul? Uh, I lost one close friend after he came back and the cause of death was a bit shrouded. Um, it, could, it was either drug overdose or suicide or something of that nature. And that's a whole other area that we haven't talked about, which are the scars of, of war when people come back. And I lost some people that I knew pretty well. The master sergeant I knew very well on the base. Talked to him quite a bit. I wouldn't say he was like one of my closest friends. And I knew a few other people. But I wouldn't say like I lost any best friends. But that it doesn't make it any easier to fathom that kind of death around you. But what's interesting is when you're in that situation is that you kind of go on cruise control. You're not scared. You're sort of in the heat of battle and you're just getting done what you need to get done. And then you get back and it's like, whoa, where was I? That was pretty serious. And that's when you start to get those the PTSD issues. And, and I was not without my issues when I came back. So Yeah, I know you have dealt with that. Um, and, you know, you make an excellent point. My father served in the Republic of Vietnam, South Vietnam, Central Highlands. And he, he was a draftee. Uh, he served. Thank God he survived that. But when he came back, he was he was a disabled vet. I mean, he had severe mental issues. He was never the same. Fast forward to today and the wars of today. They're no less thankless as what you describe in Afghanistan. We send somebody to a largely Muslim nation where if you just walk outside the wire, you are a target because it seems like nobody wants you there. I mean, I know that's not true. There were Afghans that, that did want us maybe in Kabul and maybe in some of the big cities and stuff. But, you know, our presence there is, is not necessarily welcome. And uh, the types of weapons used, roadside bombs and, and, and things like that, it's, you're on edge all the time. And as you point out, there is a huge epidemic in America a lot of these op opioids are being taken by veterans, prescription drugs, 20 to 22 suicides per day from these veterans. And so when every time a veteran who saw things, who lost friends, comes home, can't adjust, can't. I mean, we got people in Ukraine right now, Paul, as you know, fighting in the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. You know, that's that's all they know. But when they come back and they take their own life, I almost feel like we should remember them this Memorial Day. Completely, we should. This is uh, the problem that I have with the way so much of this has been run is that I almost feel like our politicians take the lives of these service members for granted. Without question. Because we, I mean, American kids are not playthings or toys that you get to have on, as part of some big game of risk. I mean, our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, I mean, we should be sending them into harm's way when it's absolutely necessary. When the national security of the U.S., our sovereignty is at risk, think World War II. But 
there's been so much military adventurism that I don't understand, you know, why we're intent on doing this and what the advantage to America is from all of this. I don't know if it's the military industrial complex. I just don't know what the, the side of it is, but we never seem to learn our lessons. No, we don't. And it, I do think it helps to have a president that knows the horrors of combat, the horrors of war. I mean, they don't make those decisions as lightly. People like George H.W. Bush and John F. Kennedy and Dwight D. Eisenhower. I mean, these, these are leaders who understood these things. But, but you don't necessarily have to be that. People who wonder how somebody like Donald Trump get elected, well, I mean, Donald Trump was a guy who campaigned on, hey, let's not fight these stupid wars. And I think people are wondering why we're spending $40 billion to fund a major land war in Europe. And I, and I, I do agree that we got to support Ukraine, but you know things are neglected here at home. And, uh, and veterans, the Department of Veterans Affairs is the one government department, aside from the Department of Defense, that I think is really important. We've got to take care of these people. Real quick, I, I, I want to say that I did lose, you know, you were, you were on the ground in Afghanistan. I was in Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom, and I was on ships, and I served with both the Navy and the Marine Corps, and there were two, I'll call them friends, because they were, Major Ray Mendoza, uh, Warhammer 6, he was known. He was a wrestler at Ohio State. He was married. He had children. He joined the Marine Corps, and he was killed in Fallujah. And uh, another guy named Train McLeod, who was an infantry officer, probably the nicest, most compassionate guy that I ever met in the military, who was killed in a helicopter crash, also inside Iraq. And then uh, I was on a ship that was sending aircraft to go support you in Afghanistan. And, and fortunately, nobody was lost, but they were sending air, you know, the aircraft were, were fighting down in Helmand, Helmand province, supporting the Brits as well as our own Marines and a lot of carnage there. Um, but those two guys that I knew that didn't come back, they were heroes and they left behind wives and children. And I can tell you this. Our country is a greater place because of their service, but had they survived and been able to take off the uniform, I know they would have done great things in our communities. And one more thing, because of the shrinking percentage of people who serve in the military, you know, we have a warrior class now. We have a warrior caste, people who serve because their dad served and their grandparents served. There's a smaller sphere of people. The people that serve and, and tonight, Paul, you know, you see everybody's focused on Ukraine, but the tinderbox really, I think, is in East Asia. We have an aircraft carrier out there, USS Abraham Lincoln, I think. It's got probably 5,000 people on there. Those people are from all 50 states. And I guarantee you, we have non-U.S. citizens serving aboard that ship in American uniforms from 40 different countries, probably. Are they doing that? Because they believe in the United States of America and the freedoms that it promises them and all of us, and they're willing to die for it. And that is what Memorial Day honors these folks who, I, today I will go to a cemetery. I'm going to bring my family later on today. And it is just a, a supremely powerful thing when you think about, we hear all these people complaining and they hate America so much. These people that are serving right now love our country so much, they're willing to die for it. We should never forget that. We will never take that for granted here at the Midnight Ride, will we, Paul? No, not at all. And I have a few ideas. I'd love to get your thoughts, but about how do we connect Americans more with their military? We don't have a draft anymore, so people don't have the connection. As you said, which was a really good point, this warrior cast that's now developed I don't want to use the word mercenary because it's not a mercenary situation, but it's people that it's an all volunteer force now. And these are the best of the best that are doing this and what's given us such a great and powerful military. But the downside of that is that most Americans don't know somebody that fell in the line of service this Memorial Day beyond, you know, my grandfather in World War II or great great grandfather in World War One or however whatever it was, but we've got to do something to get people 
closer. And I don't know if it's, do we need to develop some sort of national service, bring back the draft? I mean, what do you think on that? But I feel like there's something that has to, has to happen. You're absolutely right. You know, Gallup does a poll every year that, that measures the credibility or the favorability of certain institutions. It's an annual thing. And you might, as you might expect, you know, Congress is usually pretty low on that list. They, the medical profession, journalism is plummeting. The military has been very high, but as it should, as it, as it should, I wouldn't even call it journalism anymore. No, I mean, you got to go on Substack to get journalism these days. It's very sad. Um, but the military has been pretty high, but that number has been eroding somewhat. And I think it is because of this disconnect. I f- happen to think, and some people think I'm crazy, that compulsory, compulsory military service in the form of a draft is inevitable. Did you know, and I'm sure you know this, but maybe our listeners don't, that the class of 2022, the people that graduated high school last week and this week, 73% are ineligible to serve in today's military. So why is that? Well, it's a good question. For starters, a lot of the kids are too fat and physically unfit. This is not your father or grandfather's military. It's a very sophisticated, technologically military. So you need people who can fix sophisticated aircraft, drones, submarines. I mean, we have enlisted people that are nuclear engineers on Navy ships and submarines. So the the academic requirements are pretty high. And many kids, if you're going to a public school in in a blue city, they're functionally illiterate. And so there's only so many things that they can do. They need less people in infantry and more people that have computer skills or sophisticated skills. So there's, there's academics, there's physical fitness, there's also drug history, gang history, people who have tattoos on their neck or their face. They're not of use to the American military. So I think with that shrinking number, and we're competing with, uh, you know, the military is competing with big tech and, and the private sector, Amazon, all these corporations, they want these same kids. They don't want the loser deadbeat kids. So I almost feel like a draft is inevitable. I agree with the, what you pointed, you know, the, the words you used, public service, you know, requiring that of, of all kids. And for those that can't serve in the military, maybe it's the Peace Corps, maybe it's who knows. But we got to get over this idea that it's all about me, me, me. And you see that, you know, on TikTok and with all these lunatics and their, you know, 70 different genders. I think the military teaches you it's not about you. It's about the guy or the gal next to you, you know, and I think our society would benefit. Um, the movie that came out last week, Top Gun Maverick, uh, I saw it on Friday. It's incredible. I think that will reconnect people with the military a little bit. But I maybe we have people go into the schools or something. I, I know a lot of the leftists would be terrified at that. But maybe the military uh, can do some low cost, you know, open houses where people get to come and visit and see what their taxpayer dollars are supporting. I I don't know, but I agree with you. It needs to happen. Well, uh, there's a few things I think that that could happen. And I do think some sort of national service would be key and would be a big benefit. I think that the military should be allowed into high schools to really focus on recruiting. I know in so many places, they don't even want the military coming into the high schools with some of these liberal teachers. And that's just a huge issue in itself. And I think it needs to be thought of as a proud career. The thing is, most people don't even know about all of the good benefits you get. And I don't think you can get anything close to that in the private sector when you're coming out of high school or out of college or even college. Exactly. It's so hard to recruit right now in in this economy and I'm not just talking about military recruiting. I mean, you know, you live in the southeast, but it's the same everywhere. You go down the main street or wherever and, and every restaurant, every store has help wanted signs. I mean, people aren't working right now and the military's trying to recruit people and and I've seen in these army recruiting ads lately, they're talking about the VA home loan benefit they're talking about retirement benefits because frankly you can't buy young people today the american dream of buying a home i mean it's it's almost 
impossible for some people now. So the military is a pathway to home ownership and wealth creation and free college. And so it is, it is a great thing for a lot of people. It's not, it's not an easy life as, as you and I both know, but it teaches responsibility and it is a pathway to benefits that you can't get in many sectors of the economy. It is true. You get a pension, you get a really good salary, you get leave, you get extra allocations that are tax-free. There are so many benefits to it that I feel like if people only knew about it, they would really like it. But it's interesting. There's We follow the baby boomer generation, which I think was kind of a selfish generation, and there was a big push for kids going to college to be doctors and lawyers or whatever, and college has become somewhat commoditized. But I don't think that people understand quite how good the military is, and somehow that has to get communicated. I mean, think about if you want you want to be a pilot. 50 or, or even when I was a kid, everybody that was, you know, you'd meet as a pilot, I'd go fly with my parents and you'd get to look at the cockpit and it's like American Airlines or whatever. And all the pilots, the co-pilots, they all used to be in the military. Now they've gone to sort of like private aviation institutions to learn, whether it's Embry-Riddle or wherever they get saddled in student debt. The pay isn't that great at the airline, so it takes them a while to get out of it. And it just doesn't make any sense where you can go into the military, get great pay, get great pilot training, and then get right into a mainline carrier. And I don't even, you know, and and people aren't doing that. Yeah. One of the reasons for all of these flight delays and cancellations is that the airlines, a lot of the major ones recently increased the requirement of flight hours to, to get into the cockpit for the airlines, partly because of an accident that happened in New York a few years ago. And so it's hard to get. Oh, that was the, is that the American hero, Sully? Uh, is that the guy that landed the U.S. Airways thing in the? This was one where about 60 people were killed. And so the airlines, maybe there was a law even, but I think the airlines just on their own volition, you know, raised the requirement. And so you need like 1,500 hours. You can't get that very easily, but the military does provide that pathway. And uh, I, you know, a lot of military pilots right now who normally would fly for a lot longer, it's so lucrative for them to get out now that, you know, it's affecting our military retention. I, I want to close this segment with the great communicator, the greatest president of my lifetime, Ronald Reagan, and what he thought about Memorial Day. But, but first, Paul, you and I both joined, I think, in response to the attacks on our nation on September 11th, 2002. It was a personal decision for both of us. 2001. Uh, 2001. Sorry, September 11th, 2001. And then we went to Afghanistan in 2002. You ended up going there on the ground. And we've both worked, we've both had companies. We've both, you know, hired people. We've, we've worked in companies ourselves. Tell me about, from your perspective about the people, the caliber of people that served alongside you in, in the military. Makes me extremely proud. And it's, I think, especially we're going back when I was in Afghanistan. Now we're going back 12 years. So it was extremely professional. Everybody was dedicated. We all worked long, hard hours, put ourselves in harm's way, did what needed to be done. And the same is goes across the military. I know with your experience on ships, I was on a ship too. If you're ever out on an aircraft carrier, and you may see this in Top Gun Maverick, but some of the most dedicated people you'll ever meet to get that city at sea running and working. But the really great caliber of people. But I do have some worries. I mean, I, I, the current political environment, I'm afraid there's going to be a change in our military. We've seen, you know, from news reports, all of this training about wokeness and transgender sur- surgeries in the military. And I, I just, I don't want the military to end up becoming the same narcissistic hellhole that the rest of our society is slowly becoming. Well, there, there was a book, a famous book uh, called Irresistible Evolution, uh, written by an Air Force officer named Lohmeyer, who talked about some of this Marxist infiltration of the military. I'm not as worried about it as some people, but I do think that it needs to be nipped in the bud. 
my service, um, when I went to boot camp, because I, I, I was in boot camp before 9-11, I served and then I got out and then I came back in as a response to the attacks. I went to boot camp, Paul, with, with people in parts of our country, North Dakota, who had never seen a black person except for on television. I went, I went to boot camp with 85 guys from all over the country, all different backgrounds. And in, you know, nine weeks, you know, people were, they became brothers. And that was just in, a, in the boot camp. Then I went out into the military and I, you know, I served with people from all over the world, mostly kids from the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. But I served with uh, officers who left careers on Wall Street. And the one thing, you know, these were people from all over the world. The one thing they had in common was this love of freedom and this love of our country. And I, I want to just say that the military of today is in very good hands. And you see that, you know, everywhere you turn. And, and we just, you know, President Biden just sent some troops to Somalia a couple weeks ago. We got troops in Eastern Europe. We've got a ton of troops in Japan. And we've got some in the Philippines and other places. I mean, all over the world, these men and women, as, as when you lay down your head tonight, they're out there for us. And I think, you know, the real heroes are the ones who didn't come home. So if you're listening to this show today and there's still time, you know, maybe there's something that you could do to pay homage. I want to close with a speech from 1982, President Ronald Reagan at Arlington National Cemetery and his thoughts on this holiday that should mean so much to all of us. It's about five minutes. I hope you enjoy it. In 1863, when he dedicated a small cemetery in Pennsylvania marking a terrible collision between the armies of North and South, Abraham Lincoln noted the swift obscurity of such speeches. But well, we know now that Lincoln was wrong about that particular occasion. His remarks commemorating those who gave their last full measure of devotion were long remembered. But since that moment at Gettysburg, few other such addresses have become part of our national heritage. Not because of the inadequacy of the speakers, but because of the inadequacy of words. I have no illusions about what little I can add now to the silent testimony of those who gave their lives willingly for their country. Words are even more feeble on this Memorial Day, for the sight before us is that of a strong and good nation that stands in silence and remembers those who were loved and who in return loved their countrymen enough to die for them. Yet we must try to honor them, not for their sakes alone, but for our own. And if words cannot repay the debt we owe these men, surely with our actions, we must strive to keep faith with them and with a vision that led them to battle and a final sacrifice. Our first obligation to them and ourselves is plain enough. The United States and the freedom for which it stands, the freedom for which they died, must endure and prosper. Their lives remind us Their lives remind us that freedom is not bought cheaply. It has a cost. It imposes a burden. And just as they whom we commemorate were willing to sacrifice, so too must we, in a less final, less heroic way, be willing to give of ourselves. It is this, beyond the controversy and the congressional de debate, beyond the blizzard of budget numbers and the complexity of modern weapons systems, that motivates us in our search for security and peace. The willingness of some to give their lives so that others might live never fails to evoke in us a sense of wonder and mystery. One gets that feeling here on this hallowed ground, and I have known that same poignant feeling as I looked out across the rows of white crosses and stars of David in Europe, in the Philippines, and the military cemeteries here in our own land. Each one marks the resting place of an American hero. And in my lifetime, the heroes of World War I, the Doughboys, the GIs of World War II, or Korea, or Vietnam.
They span several generations of young Americans, all different and yet all alike, like the markers above their resting places, all alike in a truly meaningful way. Winston Churchill said of those he knew in World War II, they seemed to be the only young men who could laugh and fight at the same time. A great general in that war called them our secret weapon, just the best darn kids in the world. Each died for a cause he considered more important than his own life. Well, they didn't volunteer to die. They volunteered to defend values for which men have always been willing to die if need be, the values which make up what we call civilization, and how they must have wished in all the ugliness that war brings that no other generation of young men to follow would have to undergo that same experience. As we honor their memory today, let us pledge that their lives, their sacrifices, their valor shall be justified and remembered for as long as God gives life to this nation. And let us also pledge to do our utmost to carry out what must have been their wish, that no other generation of young men will ever have to share their experiences and repeat their sacrifice. Earlier today, with the music that we have heard and that of our national anthem, I can't claim to know the words of all the national anthems in the world, but I don't know of any other that ends with a question and a challenge as ours does. Does that flag still wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave? That is what we must do. A thank you to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library for the excerpts of that speech. And, and Paul, that's a great leader. I wish such a stark contrast from the, the leadership we have today. And that's really what we're going to get into here with our next topic, because we are, we would be remiss if we did not briefly discuss the tragic events in South Texas from last week. So when we come back, we will discuss the horrific events of the Uvalde school shooting at at the elementary school there. And what do we do about it? And that's a, not an easy, we won't have any easy answers, but we want to talk about it and, and also maybe get some of your thoughts. We'll discuss that when we come back on the Midnight Ride. We are back and uh, we're going to close today by talking about the, the shooting at Robb Elementary School. I, I know it's, it's not something that, that we... This is the Uvalde, Texas. I know it's not something that we want to belabor. This is kind of a depressing episode, isn't it? I mean, I know we're honoring the the dead and for our dead soldiers Memorial Day, and but that's tragic. And now we're going into another tragedy. It's tough. I did get an email from Netflix just now saying, Adam, we just added a TV show you might like. And it was My Little Pony, Make Your Mark which I'm not exactly sure how that came about. but You still have Netflix? Yeah. Okay. Well, I heard they were getting rid of the woke stuff, but I don't know why they're recommending me My Little Pony. The minute they had the, <laughs> the movie He's Expecting, I, dro- I dropped them. And actually, that was, you know, I should have dropped them when they came out with the affiliate, you know, movie Cuties, but I, it was very therapeutic. For, I felt great instantly after dropping them. But now, you know, you see a lot of a backlash against wokeism. And uh, I, I think that the united front of conservatives is giving some companies pause. So maybe that's that's a good thing. But yeah, this is a little depressing, Paul. And and you know, obviously today we honor the hundreds of thousands of American troops that died for our freedoms. And you know, I think if you went up to the pearly gates right now, you saw those those beautiful children and and the teacher and the grandmother of the psychopath that uh, is not joining them up there, they would be welcomed in by those American troops who would be horrified to see what is going on in our country. Just 10 days after the psychopath in the, in the grocery store, all murder is horrible. But when it hits our kids, and you and I both have kids around that age group, I was sick to my stomach, I was in tears we all were in tears seeing this news. 
horrible news to see. Uh, I knew a lot of people that were greatly impacted by it. Um, and I, just like in war, those scenes of death are horrific and they're horrible. And when it involves the, the little children, it's, it's even worse. But let's not lose sight of the people that were really impacted by this. And those are those little kids and the families of those kids. They're the ones that are really in tears and are really crying and really had this tragedy as the lives were taken away of so many, so many innocent little boys and girls that were doing nothing but be in school. And the response that I've seen has been completely predictable. It's being used as a political excuse for gun control. We saw our good friend, Robert Francis, Beto O'Rourke, I guess the fake Beto. Maybe he's trying to be Hispanic. I don't know what that is, but uh, that's another topic for another show. But going in and just running in the middle of a press conference with Governor Abbott and interrupting him and for purely political purposes, because I guarantee you that Beto O'Rourke could care less about these kids. He's just trying to score political points. That's what gets so sick about this whole thing is that we've got some major issues in this country with mental health and other things. And we're just, you know, the Democrats are just trying to go right to gun control again. Well, I think um, the mayor of Uvalde called out, and it's pronounced Beto, but Beto, Beto O'Rourke. I call it, no, his name is Robert. Yeah, Robert O'Rourke. Um, par for the course. It's all about him and his FaceTime. Sickening what he did. That was probably of this whole political theater. His busting into that as bodies were still, you know, being identified and, and kids are fighting for their lives in hospitals. And, you know, he's in there, you know, making political theater. It was disgusting. I think it was disqualifying. This man should be nowhere near any office where he has to make decisions about the welfare of an entire state. I think if, you know, there, it was former President Obama, President O'Biden, President Biden, oh, Biden. Yeah, oh, Biden again. Somebody texted me and said, are you going to be watching the president's response to this? He's coming on. And I said, no, I'm not, because I knew exactly what he was going to do. He didn't even take five minutes to talk about the, the kids and, and the tragedy before he re started railing on Republicans. Listen, we can all agree as Americans, and I think we all do agree, that of all of the, the mass shootings, and we have a culture of mass shootings in our country. There's a mass shooting in Chicago every weekend, okay? By, by any definition, to me, a mass shooting is one in which, you know, three or more people or five or more people get shot. We don't hear a lot about those. I we, don't, we don't hear a lot about those. Those are tragic as well. Even Barack Obama doesn't talk about those in his tweets. He'll talk about George Floyd getting killed by police, but if he's going to talk about black children getting killed at the hands of, of other black perpetrators in Chicago, he'll just be, he just ignores it, completely ignores it. No, those are completely ignored. And that's. And for Robert O'Rourke, who's running for governor, how many of, I mean, how many shootings happen in Dallas and in Houston and in San Antonio and in, in McAllen all the time, every day? Yeah. There are a lot. And I've never heard Robert O'Rourke come out and start yelling and screaming. No, no. And that's the political cynicism and the, we can all agree that, you know, all should feel safe. And that is the worst. That's the worst thing about this. But Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, we all agree that this is the worst kind of crime that can happen in our society. But that's, that's all we agree on. And, you know, I saw, I'm a big basketball fan. I saw our favorite leftist coach, Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors, who are about to probably win the championship again. Isn't it fitting that he's he's the head coach in Oak, the Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco area? Isn't that fitting? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. A city that has seen crime skyrocket because of, you know, these leftist policies. Policy. But I, you know, the, he had tears in his eyes. And Steve Kerr, I think, despite his misguided politics and his hypocrisy, 
I think I've met the man. I think he's a good man. He has different politics from me, okay? And I think we have to respect people's political differences and their First Amendment rights. But he had tears in his eyes, and he slapped the table as he tried to get his team prepared for for a game, which they lost, by the way, and maybe this had something to do with it, but he had tears in his eyes and he said, enough, this has got to stop. But Republicans and Democrats have different opinions on how this is going to stop. The Democrats think that by taking away people's guns, they can just make this all go away. And, you know, Kerr himself talked about something called HR8. 50 Republicans are stopping this law from passing. It's just common sense background checks, he said. We'll get to H.R. 8 in a second, but you and I and most conservatives would say, well, no, the guns are actually not the problem. It's something else. And what do you think that is, Paul, before I go in on that? Well, there's huge problems here. First of all, the first real school mass shooting, if we go back, was Columbine. And in the late 1990s, that hopefully people remember Michael Moore, our favorite communist, did a movie called Bowling for Columbine, Mm -hmm. where, and I think that's where this entire sort of gun control as a result of mass shootings, this whole thing, that's where this whole thing started. And there have been, since Columbine, there have just been this raft of school shootings. Every year there's a school shooting. There was the, obviously, Parkland, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, which which people remember, Sandy Hook. There are just so many that are there. And it's become almost like this copycat thing. And I think there's a just a raft of mental illness. I think social media where kids, in a way, are almost getting radicalized, almost how terrorists in the Middle East get radicalized. I think there's social isolation that happens these days with kids. There's bullying. I think violent video games desensitize kids to a lot of the violence and to being violent and to killing people. I don't think Hollywood does anybody any favors by continuing to make movies full of guns and violence. So this is a real deep issue. And I don't think that that guns, getting rid of guns, which are sort of a symptom and is a protected right under the Constitution, by the way. Yeah. It's the right answer. No, I, you're absolutely right. Here are Connor Coughlin's thoughts on the matter, and I'm by no means an expert. But guns are in our DNA. They have been since the Constitution and even before. Remember, you know, the early settlers to this country came here to a almost virgin land where there were natives here that may not have welcomed our presence. Guns were a fact of life and a necessity for survival. In order to rebel against the most powerful nation on earth, every American or non-loyalist British colonist needed to know how to use guns. And that stayed with us as we expanded across this country in places like Nebraska and Wyoming and, and Oklahoma. I mean, people had to have guns because otherwise, you know, raiding parties were going to come and rape your wife and kill you and take everything that you own. So guns are sort of in the American DNA. I don't think at this point, they're so ubiquitous, I don't think you can ever get rid of them. And where are the places, Paul, that have the strictest gun laws in the United States? I would say New York, Illinois, California, and Washington, D.C. That would be my guess. Yes. New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Wow, I was pretty good. Yeah, some of those places uh, are combat zones, okay? Chicago is probably ground zero, and they have the strictest gun laws in the country. I would also say Mexico has, their constitution actually has something similar to the Second Amendment where citizens have the right to bear arms, but the government has made it so restrictive on how you can get guns that the only people that have them are the cartels. Okay, and judges and even police live in fear. The police don't even can't even stop the crime. They had to call in the military in in Latin America. Same thing. So the reason why we are not is because the good guys have guns in some parts of the country. Thanks to the great efforts of the NRA. Yes, I said it. Thanks to the National Rifle Association. Americans can 
carry guns on their person in more than half of the country. And guess what? There's not mass crime there because you never know when there's going to be a good guy with a gun. And you've touched on a couple of things that I want to talk about. One is, you know, the violent video games. Another one is social media and cyberbullying. But how about the COVID policies that sent some of these young men home for essentially two years where they couldn't socialize, they couldn't play sports, they couldn't chase girls, they couldn't wrestle with their brethren, and they were isolated and they were sitting at home having their innocence taken away by an iPad, you know, watching pornography, watching what God knows what on YouTube. And playing these games like Call of Duty and Fortnite, which, by the way, this shooter who will remain unnamed was playing. And he was also bullied to the point where, you know, the the movie Full Metal Jacket? Yes. Private Pile. Private Pile. The famous Private Pile. Private Pile. I mean, I know that's a movie. But when somebody is getting bullied online all the time and has access to guns and Uh, is playing a game like Fortnite where he's just shooting people for 10 hours a day. It doesn't take much to set him off. This guy shot his grandmother in the head and then went, went to the school and started shooting very young children. We have a mental health crisis right now in this country to the depths of which we will not fully know for many years because of these COVID policies in places all over the country. Okay, because of the cowardice of our leaders who thought that a virus that gave kids a ninety nine point nine nine eight percent chance of not having to go to a hospital. We needed to protect adults and we devastated these kids. And also, here's the real problem, Paul. Where are the fathers there? We have a fatherhood, a fatherlessness crisis in this country. Nobody is disciplining their kids. Nobody is. Listen, my, my dad had guns, but he knew I knew I was going to get my ass kicked if I was anywhere near that gun case. Also, I knew that I had to be home by a certain time, that I couldn't do certain things. That is not happening in a majority of homes right now. No, and it seems like fathers, even if they are around, the discipline's not there. It's It's almost like this helicopter parent, always there for your kid. The kids get entitled. You want to be your your kid's best friend. There's the kids don't have the fear of the parents. There's no fear of consequences, and children end up listless. They have no direction, and in many cases, the mental health issues get so great that they could end up having voices inside their head. There could be some kind of psychosis. They don't even know what they're doing. In many cases, I mean, who knows what was going on in this this kid Ramos's head, but. We've got to get to the bottom of these, bottom of this. We need to have better families. We need to encourage discipline, good parenting. No, I think we need to, to, you know, we've talked about abortion, but I think that abortion has destroyed the family structure. It has. In the United States. There's a whole, whole host of issues here that are going to just keep happening. And I'm afraid that these mass shootings, I, I don't know what the answer is, honestly. I, I feel like it's just, such a complicated thing. I, I don't think you can just turn a switch and have these things stop. Well, I, one of our listeners had some very good ideas that I want to get to in a second, but Steve Kerr says HR8 is something that could, could be the answer. And, you know, and he talked about common sense background checks. Paul, you have guns. So do I. I, I proudly have. I love guns. I love guns. I proudly, you know, I am a proud owner of an AR-15 and a Glock 45. To get those guns, I had to go through some pretty intense background checks. Didn't you have to go through background checks when you got guns? Mm, well, I live in a different part of the country than you did. Okay. I, mean, I had. There was like, when you buy it, there's that like, you know, it takes like one second. They just put your social security number in the computer and then they give you the gun. Okay, but what did that social security number check? There was no check? Well, it just checks if you're like if you had any history of like criminal anything like That's that. That's right. It just comes up blank and then 
and then you can get the gun. Okay, but it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was like intense, where it took days or anything. You just go into the gun store. Do, but other states are different. I'm in the southeast, where things are very easy. Well, mine took eight days for both guns. Well, for the first gun, after the after I was vetted for the first gun, the second one was much quicker. But your social security number went into an FBI database that confirmed that you are not a violent felon. Okay. And so there was a background check that to me, that's a common sense background check. Somebody could have threatened your wife the night before. And I don't think an eight day period is a good idea there for that. But the point is, is that, well, so what is this HR eight thing? What, what, are, what is it trying yeah, to do? Well, it deals with firearms transfers. It shall be unlawful for any person who is not a licensed importer, manufacturer, or dealer to transfer a firearm to any other person who is not a licensed importer, manufacturer, or dealer. So if Paul Runyon needs a gun because he wants to go hunting or somebody threatened his wife or himself, Connor Coughlin cannot give him a gun. There are some... uh, loopholes in it. It does say a temporary transfer that is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm. I I suppose there's a loophole in that. But the bottom line is it says that you cannot transfer guns for any reason. You have to take the guns to a dealer to conduct the transfer. And so now you're getting the government involved on firearms transfers. I do believe, I, I don't have the answers either, but I do believe that if if you transfer your gun to somebody and there was no background check and that person commits a crime, you should be held liable. And if your children commit crimes with your guns, you should be held liable. Would you agree with that? I would fully agree. I see nothing wrong with that, especially if you, I mean, there, there, maybe there's a rule that just says that if you're going to transfer a, one gun, a, a gun from one person to another person that you have to, whether you're a dealer or you're not, you have to conduct a background check. and. If, for example, Paul Runyon was going to transfer a gun to Connor Coughlin, that Paul Runyon would have to put Connor Coughlin's number in the same database that the dealers do and have some sort of rule around that. I don't see anything wrong with that, but I don't know why the government has to get involved with having it go through like an official licensed person and everything. Yeah, I mean, what happened in Mexico is a cautionary tale. There's now only one gun store in the entire country where you can get guns. It's in Mexico City. And again, their constitution does give Mexicans the right to bear arms. But the only place you can get them is in one store, and it is incredibly hard to get guns. In New York City, in New York State, they have huge restrictions on buying guns. And the and as far as getting a concealed carry permit, the only people that can get those are like celebrities and, you know, people like Eric Adams and, and the uber wealthy and the rich. Normal people can't. I'm sure Nancy Pelosi could probably get one. She could get one, sure. But normal people who might need them, like the people who were murdered by that subway guy in Brooklyn, that I'm sure they could have used background checks. You know, um, the singer. AOC can get one. I'm sure she has. She probably has one. I'm sure she does. Um, yeah. And, con- and congratulations, to her, I hear she's engaged. So all of us who want to sleep with her are, are out of luck. The conservatives. Oh, here goes Connor flirting again. Well, it's you know it's <laughs> over. I'm I'm happily married, but you know she thinks that we all want to sleep with her because uh, we we disagree with her politically. At the NRA convention, which is coming up in Houston, which is just a couple hours away from Uvalde, Lee Greenwood will sing, uh, and there's some other artists. But one guy that just canceled last week was the singer of the song American Pie. Don McLean. Don McLean. He he has dropped out of, he doesn't want to be associated with the NRA. Listen, I am a proud member of the NRA. As am I. And I do not think that the NRA wants to see people murdered in schools. And in fact, I, I think they do a lot of good because they, they, they do a lot of train, safety training for firearms. And they've given, they've helped get the right and secure the rights of a lot of Americans to carry handguns on their person, which I think reduces crime. The the root causes of this mass shooting thing have to do with mental health and fatherlessness, I believe. You don't see women conducting mass shootings. It's young men, it's troubled, broken young men who have been betrayed by our society and the moral failings of our society. And we've got to get back to raising young men the right way. 
That is, is the real issue. And we have leaders like Joe Biden who, you know, he didn't go visit the people in Waukesha when a racially motivated murderer used a car to slaughter a bunch of people. No, he didn't go there. But it fits his political. He's been talking about white supremacy since minutes into his inauguration. This is the boogeyman. Well, he said it's the biggest threat to the country. And what, you know, when he talks about white supremacy, and we all know what they did down at the border, uh, I would like to point out that the people that finally brought down this horrible shooter, Ramos, were Border Patrol agents and part of their elite team. The same U.S. Border Patrol that the Democratic Party likes to use as enemy and villain number one. Yeah. Yeah. And he's this propaganda that he's putting out. I mean, there are black Americans now because of the Buffalo attack, which was such a tragedy. I, I cried when I saw that. And I saw the faces of the people who were outside that grocery store in the wake, in the immediate aftermath of that. And I saw a, a young man who worked there that would not take off his tops shirt. And he said he was proud to be there. He would be back at work when they reopened. And, you know, these are great Americans and strength, strong Americans. And some of those folks are terrified now and they feel like they are a threat. And, th and that's partly because of people like Joe Biden, who has nothing to run on. You know, we are 161 days away from the midterms. They can't get here soon enough. But this guy goes out there and gives a speech and he talks about, you know, white supremacy and, and hatred. Hate crimes happen all over our country. And, you know, Heather McDonald last week in the City Journal, she's very good about citing statistics. In New York City, from 2010 to 2020, blacks were 2.42 2 times as likely as whites to commit a hate crime. The Brooklyn subway attack. Blacks in La Los Angeles. Stop Asian hate. Remember that? Of course. Blacks in Los Angeles committed. There's a huge crisis of African-Americans conducting Asian hate crime, I think, right? They're almost five times more likely to, con to commit that than whites. And listen, I, I only point out these statistics, anti-trans hate crimes, right? We, we hear about that. Um, well, black Americans are committing those crimes at two and a half times the rate of Hispanics, and there were no white suspects in anti-trans hate crimes in Los Angeles last year. I only point these things out to say that the narrative that they're telling you about white supremacy and hate crimes is not true. It's fake. It's fake. It's a complete political ploy to stir up, to stir up their disparate identity groups to get them to vote for them. It's not fake in the sense that it doesn't happen because we know in Buffalo it happened, right? We know in the, the Tree of Life synagogue or the, the Pittsburgh thing it happened, but Waukesha, Brooklyn, some of these other hate crimes that, that occurred when there was a non-white suspect, they don't talk about that. And so they disqualify themselves as leaders because they're, first of all, they're standing on the graves of these people and, and using this to fear monger and to get, you know, Steve Kerr says, these people don't want HRA to pass because they're trying to cling to power. That's not it the, because it's not a common sense law. If it was common sense, you know, we, we could agree on it. Bipartisan laws could get passed. Well, it doesn't, that law doesn't mean anything. It's just a, it's a political law that they just want to score no. points. It's not going to do anything. And so here are some common sense. It's so it's just disgusting. The Buffalo speech was disgusting. The fact that he didn't go to Wisconsin to talk to the victims of that Christmas parade murder is disgusting. Why did he not do it? Because it didn't fit his narrative, his false narrative. Listen, people like the Buffalo guy who will remain unnamed or the Uvalde guy who will remain unnamed, they don't do this necessarily because they're this kind of hate is not rational. These people have gone insane. So we have a, we don't have a racism problem in our country. We have a mental health problem in our country. And I say the same thing about the Waukesha guy. These are these are broken people. One of our listeners a guy who goes by Huya Bubba. <laughs> and he, he's uh, one of our listeners in New Hampshire. Listen to what he says. 
I 100% believe if fathers actually raised their kids, the world would be a lot better. People were never designed to be alone and on social media, and tablets are crushing mankind, in my opinion. I would do two things. I would go to the billionaires of the United States. I, I guess he thinks that they, I mean, a lot of them, people like Bezos and, and, and Musk, they design things, right? They, they engineer things. He said, I would go to them and have them design safe schools and upgrade them, all of them. All doors locked, one entry point in, one entry point out during the day, and a, veteran, and a vetted team of two veterans at the door, armed but concealed carrying with long guns and arms reach away, but again, concealed. I would take out all of the gun-free zone signs and replace them with an ad campaign that says, if you think you're going to prey on our kids, you're wrong, dead wrong. We, are, we have professionally armed people armed to the teeth who know what it's like to be on a gunfight. And the other thing I would do is not take guns away. That's a constitutional right. I would go after body armor. Most of these bleeping P-words are wearing high-end body armor and kill a lot of people after they have been shot themselves a bunch of times. Body armor should be regulated for police and military only. It would be relatively easy because that is not regulated by the Second Amendment, and that's what I would do right up front. I don't want to hear from politicians that up-armoring our schools is not the answer. This is an immediate way to turn a soft target into a hard target. As for the fanatics, there's no reason for wearing body armor. None. Hunters don't do that. Only the police and military need that. Your thoughts, Paul? Well, as we're Coming to the end of the episode here, and it's been kind of a depressing thing, I, I do want to thank listeners like Huya Bubba. Um, it's a great name, by the way. Maybe I should have, maybe I, I wish my name was Huya Bubba. <laughs> maybe I'll do the Marine version, Ura Bubba. But look, I, I, I don't want to get into a whole debate about well, Huya Bubba's feedback, but I want to thank you for, for your thoughts on the issue. And I think there are a lot of ways to go. I mean, I don't know what I think about body armor. I do believe in in protecting the schools. I know in the Southeast and in Florida, especially uh, in Broward County after the Parkland shootings, I remember reading about that. They now have police officers with long guns at every single school in Broward County. And it's been that way since Parkland. So a lot of things, and uh, in the state of Florida, teachers are now allowed to be armed and have and undergo extensive training from the state within the school. So certain things have happened in certain parts of the country. This is a debate that's that's never going to end, but I will say I'm looking forward to next week when we can back, get back to such exciting topics of as administrative law judges and random cases out of the uh, the 1st through 11th circuit that we normally talk about on the Midnight Ride. And there will be gun control. There's a big gun control case out of New York that we're following, and we'll update you that on the Midnight Ride. If you're like Hooyah Bubba and you want to give us your thoughts, you can email us at themidnightridepodcast at gmail.com. There's a poll up on our Twitter feed today about how the best way to solve school shootings is. There's also one about what you're doing this Memorial Day. So please respond to those. We want to thank you for listening. We started the Midnight Ride to sound the alarm about threats to our constitutional freedoms. If you believe in that mission, please keep listening. But more importantly, tell a friend and uh, give us a five-star rating and please subscribe. I want to say that uh, even though uh, we didn't serve together in Afghanistan, I want to say it's been an honor uh, to have worn the cloth of the nation alongside you. And, uh, and I enjoy doing this show and let's do it again next week. huh? Let's do it. Let's keep it rolling. <laughs> for, for Paul Runyon, I am Connor Coughlin. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week on another edition of the Midnight Ride Podcast.